Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. This week, Alyssa Mastromonaco and I look ahead to 2020 and how we're going to keep ourselves in fighting shape for the most important election of our lifetimes. Then Tian Tran, Kieran Deal, and Priyanka Arabindi join me in studio to look back on 2019, from what we love to watch on TV to what we read. And speaking of reading, we've also got an interview with author Julia Phillips. Then instead of Hills, we're going to talk about all the ways women stood up to President Trump this year. You'll love to see it. Hey, are you guys ready for 2020? You might think that it's going to be a bad year, what with the 11 months of escalating, shouting, culminating in the loudest election in our lifetimes, but I actually think it will be good. For example, 2020 is perfect for those New Year's Eve glasses, which means the year won't start off with people trying to figure out a way to make eye holes in the number one, which was a disaster for 10 years. So for more on how we're getting ready for a very important year, I'm going to call my friend, former White House Deputy Chief of Operations under President Barack Obama and the Daenerys Targaryen of grouchy-looking cats, Alyssa Mastromonaco. Hey, Alyssa. Hello, Erin. What was that accent? Was that an accent? It sounded like liver, um, Liverpool. <laughs> uh, that accent is uh, sinusitis. <laughs> Ooh, you sound like one of the Beatles. They, Don't be jealous. I'm totally jealous. So end of the year is a time when a lot of people start kind of assessing what they've already done, which is stressful because everybody feels inadequate when they're like, what have I done this year? You know, whatever. Um, but I think what's exciting about the end of the year is that it's a good time to like get ready for what's coming. And what's coming yeah. in 2020 is a lot of really important stuff. Uh, the most important, most important election in our lifetime is coming up. And we have to, I guess, be in good fighting shape. So I'm curious what you're going to do to get yourself ready to, you know, run the 11-month marathon that we have to run next year. I mean, honestly, I'm taking a social media vacation. You are? You know. Wait, wait, no, yeah, I when? mean, I'm going to try. I have to try because here's the funny thing. As you know, I was in Bavaria for a family vacation and the upside of being like eight hours ahead of the East Coast with three generations of your family is that like you're not checking Twitter all that often. And so I get to my hotel room at the end of the night, look at the TV and be like, it would just be like Angela Merkel being like, and then in America today, wah, wah. And they'd move on. And I felt so much better. Like, it's not like I forgot it was fundamentally terrible, but sometimes we just don't need to be reminded of how fundamentally terrible it is all the time because it does make you hopeless and feel like you're not having impact when we are having impact, mm -hmm. right? We're all having impact. It's like, get up, you go to work every day. You, um, you help take care of people. You help old ladies across the street. You help support mom's demand action. You help like support women's rights to reproduction or you know what I mean? Yeah. And so we're all helping we're doing, but sometimes you just need a break. You can't, it can't just be the negativity in your face all the time because nobody wants to say the news doesn't want to say we're winning or we're having an impact. It's like not good news right now. Like, mm -hmm. so we, that's what we should do. Just need to take a little break. Right. I mean, you don't want to watch the sausage being made sometimes. Like, I think the news cycle can be really corrosive because, yes. you know, you see people coming with it's a very it's a very bad faith form of entertainment because everybody who comes 
onto your cable news screen is there. They're not there to have a discussion. They're there to represent talking points for the most part. They're there to repeat things that they've been told to repeat. And uh, they're there to create a moment for themselves. And that doesn't have anything to do with what's really happening. I think what's really happening, a really important thing is that uh, the things that are happening and the things that are important are the things that are going on right around you, in addition to what's happening in Washington, obviously. But you can affect the things right around you. You can't affect the fact that Neil Gorsuch is going on Fox News, and that's, and that's gross. Um, you can't affect the fact that um, the RNC is buying hundreds of thousands of copies of Donald Trump Jr.'s book Ugh. so that, you know, daddy's little propeller hat boy can be on the New York Times bestseller list. Those things are infuriating. But what you can affect is like, you know, do you talk to your friends and neighbors? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you making sure everybody's okay? Are you representing what your viewpoints are and what your morals are in your own communities? And I think in order to be somebody that's like an, an, a local advocate, you have to you. I don't want to I don't want to be like shaking my finger. I know that if I am being a local advocate, I have to take care of myself. And part of taking care of myself is um do you want to hear my resolutions, Alyssa? Yeah, let's hear them. Okay. So, kind of along the lines of your social media vacation, um about the the last half of last year, I I read a ton and not like news. I read a ton of novels and really beautiful writing that didn't really have anything to do with my day-to-day life. And I found it to be a really incredible escape. I found it to be um, a really great way to feel connected to people's experiences that were different than mine. And I mean, I know, whatever, I'm not like a kid who just learned how to read, but it was really, really helpful for me. So going into 2020, I'm always going to be reading a novel um, and here's my trick, because I know it's sometimes hard to find. Tell me. I was going to ask. Okay. So here's my trick. Um, because I used to be like, why is it taking me three weeks to read this book? It's only 300 pages. And it was because yes. I would have like 10 minutes a day where I would just like sit down or I would read before bed and I would pass out. Here is the trick. Um, instead of when I find myself just aimlessly scrolling through social media, I'll be like, mm, you know what? I'm doing the thing. I will set a timer on my phone for 20 minutes. I'll turn my phone upside down, pick up my book, and I don't look at my phone. I don't look at anything but my book for those 20 minutes. And usually when the timer goes off, I'm like, eh, 10 more minutes. And then it only takes me, you know, a week or so to finish a book if I'm really like committing to it like that. So that's like a, a trick. That's very important because I think I'm a reading fail because I try to do it before bed. And the truth is I just pass out and then I feel like, I've lost my brain. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel like sad about myself. So then I stop picking the book up because I know I'm just going to fall asleep. But I think that is a very good option. It's actually how I wrote my second book. How did I you, turn, how I did turn you, the, you have to turn the Wi-Fi off. You turn the I Wi-Fi it, off. Yeah. Because the problem is when you're writing the book, you're usually on your computer. Right. And so all of a sudden you're getting like pop-up notifications. And so there's an actual app you can download, but I just used my fingers and I would turn the Wi-Fi off and set a timer separately. That was like for an hour because mm-hmm. after an hour, your brain needs a break anyway. Mm-hmm. And I got so much done. And so I'm actually going to try that with reading because I'm, I am feeling a bit, I'm feeling a bit dull. Like Mm -hmm. I could, I could use with a solid, you know, couple of books to plow through between now and my birthday, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I've, I've, I found that reading has been super helpful. Also when, remind me, when's your birthday again? Um, the end of February. Okay, good. So I have time to assemble an embarrassing present. 
Please do. I'm gonna. Um, I'm creeping up on the 44 this year. Yikes. Oh my God. You're double, I know. double numbers. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Let's pretend it's lucky. Um, uh, I also have found, this is going to sound really like Pollyanna-y, but I've found that when I'm feeling really sad, it helps me to do something nice for somebody else that needs something nice done for them. Um, yes. So um, the other the other day, uh, so I have a, my sister-in-law just had a baby and uh, the baby is, you know, she was born at the end of November and I was trying to figure out what to buy her for the holidays. And I tweeted, you know, what is a good gift for a new mom that, people, oh, I saw that, tweet. Yeah, that people didn't think to give you. And there are all these people that had all these great ideas. And it made me think, actually, that's something, a lot of them were things you could do for a new mom or somebody who's busy, who has like a lot going on and not a lot of time. There are like, things that you can do for people that you know and care about that will mean a ton to them and that won't be a huge sacrifice for you. Um, so like if you have a friend who's a new mom offering to babysit their kids, because being around kids is mega distracting. Like it's really hard. Yes. It's really hard to be mad about the news when you're watching, like you're trying to keep a four-year-old from killing themselves. It's great. Um, so I mean, offering to babysit somebody's kids and being like, you're going to go get a manicure right now and I'm going to sit with your kids and not think about the dumbness of the world. I'm going to think about how cool your kids are or how crazy your kids are. Um, I think like doing a little something like that for somebody that you know is, is a super nice thing to do. I think that is really nice. And you know, unrelated but related, a couple of weeks ago, I have really been suffering with what I think are hot flashes. And it's like, the more you think it's happening, you're like, oh my God, I'm only in my early forties. Is this really menopause? Like what's going to happen? And I was really just like by myself on the internet and just going down the, the, you know, rabbit hole. And I was like, fuck that. And so I tweeted. And I think that one thing that is nice to do too, and that I want to do more of because people were so nice to me is like, sometimes you just have a real question and you want to crowdsource. So I tweeted at menopause Twitter and was like, when did your hot flashes start? And what did you do about them? And can I tell you, I got the nicest, most fucking helpful answers that you can possibly imagine. So when I see people tweet things like that, I'm going to take time to write thoughtful uh, replies so that you can pass it forward, pay it forward. Because like, honestly, some of this stuff, I was like, wow, that's really easy. Mm-hmm. Like I can do that. And it helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Cause we're not alone. <laughs> yes. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's ever alone. I mean, that's the upside and the downside of the times we're living in right now is nobody's ever alone. Nobody's ever alone. <laughs> like there's right. two, two sides of that. Um, let's use it to our advantage when we can. Yeah. And we're especially not alone going into 2020 because there are many of us as we proved in 2018 and we just need to keep ourselves, you know, healthy and in good fighting shape and make sure that we're taking care of each other too. And I, I think we can do this, Alyssa. I think we can do it. You know what? In the immortal words of a man, we don't see enough anymore. Yes, we can. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I didn't plan that. It just came to me and I tickled myself. I, <laughs> I am also tickled and let's end the conversation on that. Um, happy New Year, Alyssa, and looking forward to a great 2020. Auf Wiedersehen. Bye. Bye. About a month ago, we asked you to submit pitches for fake B-level holiday movies, the likes of which you might see on Lifetime around this time of year. And you guys responded in such force that we are, quite frankly, worried about you. We got hundreds of pitches, and people are still sending them to the point that Caroline is, quote, getting mad. 
unquote. As promised, we've picked some of our favorites, and right now you're going to hear some of the Hysteria crew read a few of them. And in the meantime, make sure to look out for video versions of these pitches hitting Crooked Media's socials. You definitely won't regret it, unlike Caroline, who 100% regrets agreeing to having this contest in the first place. Ho, ho, hope you're ready. This is All I Want for Christmas is You, written by Rachel. Carol is a high-powered working woman in the big city. She returns to her family's sheep farm in Shepherd, Montana, for the first Christmas in a long time. She thought she should since her mom recently passed and her dad is on his own trying to run the farm. Upon her return to her quaint and idyllic hometown, she sees that her childhood best friend Tom, a sensitive guy and yet a man's man, is now helping her dad run the sheep farm. Oh, and he's a widow with a plucky 10-year-old daughter named Holly seasonal. But the farm's in trouble and they need something big or a large evil corporation will take over the farm and make it an automated factory. Can Carol save the farm? Will she and Tom pull the wool away from their eyes and realize they're destined for one another? With a large sweater sale, one musical number that is completely unnecessary, and the help of a plucky 10-year-old and Santa, it just might happen. Oh, and in the end, there's a baby lamb with a bow on it and Tom says, Carol, all I want for Christmas is you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, this is a thing. I, I feel like I need to be honest with you people. Um, this is something we've recorded like a week ago that you're hearing. And you're hearing our old voices, but we're going to do a special episode for you about the end of the year, things we enjoyed in 2019 um, and things that uh, we found to be good in a year of uh, burning garbage. So let me introduce the panel who's here to help me try to end the year on a high note. First off, she is a comedian and the head writer for CBS's Diversity Showcase. It's Tian Tran. Hello! Welcome back. So great to be here. Again. Again. <laughs> Ooh, the magic of behind the scenes. You guys don't even know. Uh, BTS. <laughs> BTS. BTS. I think I was in an airplane with some members of BTS <gasps> one time. What? Yeah, I wasn't. This is like. The I just l- found out what this means. What does it mean? This, is that a BTS this little. Thing? It's a tiny. It's a heart. <gasps> oh, oh, it's so cute. Oh, oh, I know about this K- from K-pop hands from BTS. Poppy Lou. Oh my gosh! Anna, yes, from from Sunny Side. She would always do that, and I yeah. think me and Moses were both like, "Why is she always putting up that money sign?" <laughs> <laughs> she's always like in every picture. She's like cash money, yeah. and then it was like, "Oh, we did not know it's, oh, it's BTS." Yeah, so I don't know cute. anything about K-pop. Okay, up next we have. Uh, she's an actor. She's a comedian. You can see her on Sunny Side on NBC.com. It's Kieran and Deal Hulu. and Hulu and NBC Hulu Ooh, NBC Hulu. Yeah. And last but not least, special guest. I think this is you're the most frequently appearing special guest on Hysteria. Oh yeah, like love it. You've you've got squatters rights at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it is Crooked Media's own Priyanka Arabindi. Thank Hello. you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, I love this panel. It's fun. It's the best. It's fun. Uh, Priyanka, how was your year? My year is ending better than it started. I think. That's good. It's like, I feel like December has been busy and fun and we'll just kind of be like, yeah, it was fun. Sure. Totally. I remember one time I talked to you and you're like, I feel like crying all the time. Oh yeah. That was, that was, uh, those were dark days. Yeah. uh, We've moved past. But look, now the sun is out. I know. I love that. The short days. Guys, I'm not crying in my car anymore. Like we're, we're good. That's so good. I'm seeing a lot of teeth from you. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, crying is bad. Like in New York City, you never have any alone time. And I remember like learning that in New York, you just cry out in the open. Oh yeah. 
It's like putting on deodorant. You just do it. You're just like, well, there's no place for me to do this. So you're sitting there like walking, <laughs> eating a like a euro and crying. It's just, uh, it's normal. But I'm glad you're not crying anymore. Thank you. I am too. <laughs> I mean, like I still cry sometimes. No, no, I've, like I've, the, yeah. I believe you have never, you'll never cry again. <laughs> um, well, because 2019 had so much news that was bad and annoying, I thought that it would be a good way for us to end the year by talking about things that we really liked in 2019 and we're going to start by talking about stuff that's like normal stuff to like and then we're going to get weirder as the conversation goes okay. on this is like a dating app outline it's like all your favorite like yeah like, oh no well i mean i think it's a, a good thing about 2019 is that there was a lot of good art made mm-hmm. like you know i was looking back at 2001 um <laughs> for just like normal <laughs> reasons um just because i was like listening to a, a playlist of that era because i was trying to write about something happening in that era and I was like, wow, culture was trash in the year 2001. <laughs> and it's actually pretty good now. You know, politics are bad, but culture is is getting better. What was bad in 2001? Yeah, what yeah. was like the movie of 2001? That made Whisker that wash, low rise, bell bottom oh, yeah. jeans. Uh, oh. with the, they're with coming the, back apparently? No. Some say. Yeah, no. Over my dead body. Thank they're you. coming <laughs> back. They're not coming back. But it was like, you know, like Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears and like spray tans oh, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and frosted uh frosted lipstick and it was just like it was just like everything was like orange and shiny and leathery and, <laughs> and like in a way it kind of is yeah. white house so. yeah yes. yeah Bo- boy <laughs> bands it's pl- it's played out it's, played it's, out. it's now it's playing out in politics <laughs> boy bands and like rap metal like, which is so bad. It was so much worse than I remember. I listened to P.O.D. and I was like, wow, this isn't music. It's shouting. So <laughs> let's get started on some of the good stuff that happened in 2019. Um, I'm going to start with you, Karen, since you work in TV on the camera. What what do you think was the best show that you uh, that you watched that might not be like a, one of those shows that's mentioned in like award conversation? Oh, it's see, it's because I really I know, but she won all of them. I really did think that she was. I mean, I, I think that it was. We know who she is. Yes, yeah, we know who she. Don't even say her name. We all know. I we think know. it was like this. I mean, this. I'm sure that there. It was a divided. I, I'm sure it was a divided place slash room and all of that stuff. Um, but I think. I thought Fleabag season two, yeah, and and the and the and the first episode of that, oh. and the way it was like a parallel of the Last Supper was just so stunning. Yeah, I, one that I've seen, that. one that I've seen that I think is really terrific that other people might have not seen, um, and he's incredible in this. Is Paul Bettany is in a, a Discovery Channel show about the Unabomber uh, oh. that I don't know if it's from this year, but he is insanely good. Hmm. It, he is like. It's a testament to how, like, if you don't have the right network behind you um, to, like, push you through the award season, but you have great content. Like, if that was on HBO, it would have been the Chernobyl of HBO. It was like, mm-hmm. it's not perfect towards the end, but his performance is just, it's in, she's stellar. He's absolutely stellar. And no one's heard of it. I hadn't heard of it. And then somebody told me about it. And I was like, holy shit. I left a, a gathering with real humans where I was like, I got to go finish watching Paul be, be the Unabomber right now. Okay, what, what happened with the Unabomber? No, I'm just kidding. I know. It's a cliffhanger. No, no, but spoilers. no spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers, Aaron. That's um, not what I'm about. Yeah, that's how I felt about Chernobyl. I was like, oh, I don't want it to be spoiled. Um, <laughs> by the way, uh, Craig Mazin, who created and wrote that show, used to be Ted Cruz's roommate 
in college. Whoa. He's the he's the roommate of Ted Cruz who's always like, fuck that guy. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, I love that. Also, and he, then he wrote a show about Chernobyl. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he also co-wrote The Hangover 2. So he's had quite Wow, he quite has a range. range. Yes. <laughs> yeah. range. And, um, range. Real complicated. I, I was in a room with him and he is also just like a lovely man. So it's Aww. one of those things that you're just like, oh, Craig. So glad you're you're finding success. You're just you're the greatest. Um, a couple of shows that I saw that I thought were undersung. Did you guys see Undone on Amazon? No. It is animated, and it's super weird. And Bob Odenkirk is in it, and it is about a woman who is she gets in a car accident, and after the car accident, she like thinks that she sees her dead father, and her dead father is like telling her how to solve his murder, and it's like it's so weird and it's not perfect but it's really weird and good and it's one of those things that I'm like I'm glad they tried this mm, you know oh. I think it's like a couple of Bojack Horseman people made it and um, it's really interesting the main character has um, a disability she has like a, a cochlear implant mm. and she like will remove it sometimes and that it like plays into the show and it's just like she also is a very flawed person it's really really good so I recommend Undone mm. oh my two would be okay off of animated um i loved tuca and birdie mm-hmm. did anybody want- i was just thinking about them i really loved that show it, it only I'm had that one that. it only had one season but it's uh it's a cartoon voiced by ali wong and tiffany haddish and steve yun and it's just such a smart funny cartoon about women and they also like t- take on some serious issues i don't want to spoil it for you if you want to watch it but it's so funny so smart and beautiful it's beautifully drawn i think it's it's lisa it's lisa hannawall right yeah, yes okay yeah. and then the other show would be but i feel like it's always uh, fleabag season two but uh pen 15 yes pen yeah. 15 was so good i haven't laughed out loud at a show in so long and that made me laugh out loud. I was crying and laughing at the same yeah, time. Yeah, so during funny. One, but not like cry laughing. I was like emotion crying yes. and also laughing out loud. At the scene, there's a scene where they're at a school dance and oh. that scene I was just like oh, it, it's <clears throat> the concert recital got me. Concert recital <laughs> so, so good. I watched the last two episodes about a week ago, and I remember you talking about, oh, they're so amazing. And I was like, all right, Ryan. And then it was like I watched, and I was like... They're I, incredible. I, I concede. Ryan, yeah. I concede. This is excellent. This is excellent. It's, it's, like a, it's like a beautiful indie film where these girls actually like really ground into it, and it's funny, and it's very poignant, and the voice is so specific. It's really wonderful. It's so, so good. good. And it gets you forget better. That they're, it gets better. Yeah. You like, forget that they're like 30-something-year-old women playing these... Teenagers. Except sometimes you can see that they've like strapped their boobs. Oh, yeah, down. yeah. <laughs> but like, like their physicality and like, yeah. it's so amazing. Yeah, that's the, what makes it so, that's what makes it like, that's what helps to heighten the ridiculousness. Like, yeah. like how insane all of the emotional stuff that they're going through is and how, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, anyway. It's so good. Priyanka, they know. What we was all know. Your, what we, all, were your, we, uh, we all know. Shut up, kid. <laughs> what were your shows of the year? Uh, mine is decidedly a little more trash, but I love trash TV. Um, you, uh, I think, which was first oh, on yes. the stalker show. <laughs> yeah. What first, is that? Okay. It was Penn first, Badgley, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. that is actually. It's first on Lifetime, which I think no one watched. And then it got on Netflix like right around the new year. So the first show. It blew up. Yes. Because it's crazy. It is a batshit crazy show. I love, I feel like I'm way less into TV and movies than the rest of this town. But when I do watch, I'm usually with like my roommate or friends. It's a very fun show to watch with people. Especially if you're like a person who will like 
scream and freak out, like kind of like get scared by things and react. If you are like a reactive person to your TV. Um, yeah, it is a trip. And the second season is coming out uh, right after Christmas. And I'm very, I think the day this podcast airs. So that's what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> it is a crazy show. It is definitely wow. one of those shows that seems like it has a self-awareness to it. Like oh, yeah. It know, it's like playing to the audience where it like knows that you're going to freak out about. So it is over. It is ridiculous. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's the craziest show. So you watch television with others like it's the year 2000? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, like my roommate and I were like, great, we're both home. Like, let's go watch an episode. Whatever. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's what I used to do. I with, know like, me too. The Bachelor. When the Bachelor, I do that with the comes bachelor on, too. I just like I saw it's too depressing to watch alone. I'm like, eh. I'm yeah. trying to do that with the L word. I'm trying to see the new L word in a group right now. I was trying to watch I was trying to watch an episode of The Bachelor because I got real curious because people have been talking about it on this podcast. I don't have a way to watch it. It's not on the um Hulu. You can get like a ten dollar TV antenna. And like connected to your TV and you get free TV. What am I, a queen? What are you talking about here, Ryan? <laughs> um, let's move on to movies that we really liked. Um, I'm going to start. Yes, go. I, okay, so let me just start with my thesis on movies. I think that the only interesting movies that are being made right now are in the horror and thriller space. Ooh. Because those movies rely on novelty and surprise. And so by design... They have to have something surprising about that. Like, Hollywood can't worm its way out of it. Like, Hollywood tends to just make shit that already worked, and they do it over and over mm. again until they've beaten it to death and you hate every version of it. But, like, with <laughs> horror, it has to be—audiences need to be surprised. That's why um, Get Out was so successful, because yeah. it was new and surprising. That's why Us was so good, because it was, like, a new thing. Um in that tradition, I think Midsummer was one of my favorite movies of the year. And I'm a wimp about horror. Like, I have to read the synopsis before. But I thought it was, like, a really beautiful piece of filmmaking and an incredible examination of, like, grief, resilience, survival. And uh, and I think the way that it was shot and the way that it's, like, it sounded was just incredible. Uh, so if you haven't seen, I mean, there is some mallet violence in it. So if you're saying Count me out. Very sensitive to mallet violence. I love the way you're like, you're like, you're never surprised in any movie, but I have to read the synopsis before. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's like, because it's like, oh, how are they going to do this? Like, because there's no, I read what happens and I was like, okay, I get it. And then there's the same thing with this, uh, with the director's other movie, Hereditary, where it's like, oh, yeah. I knew it was super scary and I read it yeah. and I was like, okay, I'm ready for this. And I was not. <laughs> fully ready for it. Um, Midsummer is, I think, really innovative and it is shot really like, it's sort of like overexposed and so it sort of like hurts your eyes to look at it and there's also this like mega violence happening on it and it's just like, it's a really, it's a good movie. Not for kids, but it's a good movie. Has anyone else seen it? I, I need to see it. I haven't it's seen it. It's on my list. It's not, it's, I, it's I'm not, too I've, scared. I haven't, I, I've been bad about watching movies this year. Okay. My roommate looked at me and was like, mm, you won't like it. Oh, like, okay. Great. Okay, so uh, you're like, and Chan, Chan do you want to go? Yeah, I have. Well, I my favorite movie it was Parasite. It's incredible because it was like such an incredible movie viewing experience. It was truly the most like novel movie watching experience I've ever had. The other movie I'm going to sit you to is The Farewell. I haven't seen The Farewell yet. Oh my god, absolutely loved it. 
such a good film. Have you seen it? Yes, it's the, it was what I was going to say. Sorry. Dan. And it's like and I because took two. Oh, look couple, at me. There's a couple of things. Number one is that I haven't seen that many movies this year from this year. Oh, I feel I'm really not bad. on it. And then <laughs> I was going to say that because I have seen it and I was like it's small, it's a tiny little movie, Sorry. but like they did the they did the important stuff right, mm-hmm. you know. And a woman like, directed it, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, directed and wrote it. Wow. It's a tiny little Sundance movie that's kind of a little engine that could that is a kind it's she did I mean just given the David Goliath of filmmaking and the budget she was working on and stuff it's just she just she just did the most it's like when you see Beasts of the Southern Wild they yeah. like they they hit the relationships the relationships are done in such really a way that beautiful. it's like oh yeah like this is what a movie is about at its core is like human connection and like yeah there's something really beautiful it's funny and I started weeping from the jump cried through like just waves of crying you got Priyanka the- disease <laughs> yeah just wave of crying throughout Priyanka the whole theater disease. um Aquafina is really good in it oh, wow. I would argue that the other characters are like the grandmother is incredible the grandmother's phenomenal the, the grandmother phenom- stole the show the, I thought in, she stole the so show so for that alone go watch the farewell it's okay so also in independent filmmaking lore lulu wang who is the director of that movie is dating barry jenkins i know and it's like what the a whole, hot like, power couple yeah, it's like very hot power couple yeah. it's all the talk of it's like chelsea peretti and jordan peele mm-hmm. i'm like really guys mm-hmm. <laughs> really you're gonna concentrate all that talent in that one household you guys are a little vacuum <laughs> of genius <laughs> share yourselves no i'm just kidding um Priyanka, what was your favorite movie of the year? I was year? like, with who? You and your fiance? <laughs> no, just like, with, with whom? What, yeah. Let's get more into, let's get, let's go deeper into that. That was your 2019. No. Yeah. All right. Um, mine was Book Smart. It was. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love a little coming of age movie. Yeah. Very heartwarming, sweet, but also like super fucking funny. Like mm-hmm. it was like very like actually laugh out loud, funny, good. I, I just loved it. I loved it. It was the, the scene with the swimming pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a swimming pool scene that has a song. Uh, shoot. Who, the music in it, the whole movie is great. Is, is really good. Yeah, this, there's a swimming pool scene where it shows like these, this girl who like her crush, she thinks her, she and her crush are like undressing the, and they're going to jump in the swimming pool and she's looking for her crush. Oh, yeah. And it's like, yeah. it's. So it's such a beautifully shot scene. It's so good. I, I yeah, I really like them. Also, Beanie Feldstein is so good. She's great. Amazing. They both are. They're both incredible. She's Delta Delta, Delta Airlines edited that queer scene out. <gasps> what? Yeah, because I was because wow. it was like it was the first time I had seen it. I watched Booksmart on the plane, and then I was like, oh, this is such a sweet scene. And then I came home on American, and. The guy next to me was watching it, and I saw a completely different. And scene. you were like, uh, and I was like. <laughs> and this got cut out of the Delta. I feel bad. Like I play in movies. How do you know? Like what you miss? Yeah, you have no idea. You have no yeah. idea. Delta I cut mean, it out. Delta. Wow, Delta, the hallmark of the air. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. See, I have one. So this was the other one. Is this is from 2016? But I do think that there is a lot of porousness in the way you can watch movies now. Um, Park Chan Wook, The Handmaiden. Has anyone seen this? Movie? No, but I've been wanting it's, to. Stunning, and the cool thing about this is it's down. an adaptation. That's an ad- it is an adaptation uh, from a British like novel or something. So it's like he made it. It's subtitled, but he made it, and you know, like and like adapted it the other way, which I just thought was 
was really fucking boss of him. Hmm. I was like, you do it. I'm going to watch that. You get it. You get it, Park. All right. Before we get to the fun ones, uh, books. And Priyanka, I know you're a reader. What was, yes. your fa- what was your favorite book of the year? Um, I feel like this will probably be a lot like on a lot of people's lists already, but educated. I thought I read it at the very beginning of the year. And it is just crazy to me that the woman who wrote it, basically, if you don't know much about the story, she's she grew up, um, I think it's like survivalist or something. So they're basically like isolated from society in like the middle of, I think, Utah. Her and her family, they don't believe in modern medicine. Like they don't go to traditional school, any of this. Um, and they have like, they deal with health issues, mental health issues, all of this stuff. Um, and when she's 17, she goes to school for the first time. And she's like learning about stuff like like the Holocaust and all these things like way later. And like her sense of what, the world is, is so vastly different than what any, most people reading it is. And I feel like the experience of reading it, the actual book, it's like so beautifully written. It's so, the awareness and like the, all of it is incredible. And you're like, it is so like the feat of you writing this book, like what it took to get to this point is incredible. And like, not only that, the story is moving and emotional and good. And like, I blew through that book so quickly and told everyone I knew about it. I just, I'm going to yeah. write that down. Write it, down. Write it, it down. down. it is good. It is good. Tian, do you have a favorite book of the year? I'm always, I'm always behind on books. So I'm like trying to catch up with the classics and reading things. So the, my, the book that I read this year that I had, had been on my list was The Sympathizer, but I know that's from like a couple of years ago. Has anyone read The Sympathizer? It's no. on my list, but I have not. Um, it's a spark now. Uh, <laughs> it's written by Viet Dan, Dan Nguyen. Um, Vietnamese author, and it's about What's how it again? the sympathizer. Um, it won the Pulitzer in 2016, I think. Um, but it's about a uh, Vietnamese man who was a spy for the Viet Cong, a spy in the South Vietnamese Army, and then he leaves Saigon and comes to the states. And it's kind of about how his life in the United States is all complicated because all of his friends are in the South Vietnamese army, but he has been working for the VC. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, whose side, like who is actually against who in war? And it's, I remember reading it and I was like sad. I couldn't put up my finger on why I was like sad and upset and forlorn for like five days after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's because there's like a, a whole section of it. That's about a reeducation camp. And my dad was in one, but he never mm-hmm. talks about it. And I, it was the first like portrayal of one that I had read. And I was like, so upset. And then I, my partner was like, uh, yeah, you just read this book. That's like about your dad, like kind of related to your dad's experience. And you had never talked about it before. I was like, oh, that's why (laughs) I'm sad for days, (laughs) but it's a beautifully, it's a beautifully written book. Another, another memoir. Uh, no, no, no. Fictionalized. fictionalized. It's a fiction. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a fiction book. Yeah. Karen, what was your favorite book of this year? I struggled this year with books, and I'm looking back over my notes because I was given suggestions of books from other people. So I'm just going to say ones that I haven't gotten to yet that I haven't read that I heard are excellent. Um, there's a book called Homegoing. Um, oh, that's also on my list. Yeah, right. And then, uh, and then there's <laughs> another one. Less is supposed to be really good. I mean, obviously, less is supposed to be very good. But uh, And My Sister, the Serial Killer. Uh, is by, Ooh, okay. yeah, my sister, the serial killer is supposed to be very good. The last, okay. The last, 
the last like novel that I like remember, like I like loved with my heart was The Sellout by Paul Betty, mm-hmm. um, mm. which I hope I'm, Beatty, I think I'm saying his name right. Um, the, what, is it, what is it? The Settle? The Sellout. Sellout. Which is f- f- like, I, I mean, it's, it's so funny and sarcastic. It's satire. It's a man in Los Angeles who owns a slave. Um, he's like the oh, last God. guy to own a slave in, in like, I think it's like South Central Los Angeles. And um, and he is in a Supreme Court case where he's like making the case for it. And it was just one of the most original things I've ever read. Mm-hmm. And I laughed so much because it's such a commentary on what capitalism is. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a Mel Brooksian lift to make that funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like I wouldn't, when I heard the premise, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and then I started reading and the writing's so fucking good. It's okay. so good. I mean, I hope you enjoy it. I, yeah, it's like I always get snobby about, like I'm really snobby about prose. Mm-hmm. I want the prose to be. To it's sing. Really, to I, sing. I, I want the, I, I'm really big on the prose. <laughs> I really wanted to sing. I just want the prose to be like, oh, mm-hmm. I want to feel like. I want to feel like jizzy. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh my god! Okay, okay, that's <laughs> noted. Not, that's uh, going to be your. Did not expect that. <laughs> that's Thank your you like. So much. That's your blurb on the back of like something. You have a friend who reads a novel. Dot 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 jizzy. Dot, or dot, dot. just like moist, <laughs> very moist, Extremely very moist. moist when you write, beautiful. When you write your book, I'll read it and then let me get let me get a book. I don't know. No, I don't no, know no, if I'm a moist. I don't know if my I don't know if my prose would make you moist. I don't. I'm not sure that I have that gift. Oh, Jesus. Beautiful read. Maybe Dry. we shouldn't have any of this in hay. here. <laughs> Moist well, is a good word. Somebody's gone into that in the hill. It's been fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's uh, you. She hates it. I don't hate it. I just have, I just have, I'm tired of the, I'm tired of the debate. Um, <laughs> Aaron's unsubscribed. Wow. Aaron, like, she's not making eye contact I anymore. She she's, just like, she's like, she's like, moving on. I one time I had a uh, like a friend confront me and she was like you know you make people feel very judged and I was like what and then I realized like I my mom has that quality too where sometimes she'll just be like I don't think so and it's like she's not trying to be anyway I sometimes do it so that was not my intention um I read a lot this year and uh some of the books I read a lot of books not on purpose. It just so happened that I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. This sounds good. A lot of them were by uh, women and people of color and queer people, which was like a cool thing when I was like looking down at my list of books that I'd read. Um, One of my favorite works of fiction that was like kind of a light read that kind of sneaks around and punches you in the back of the head, uh, Fleischman is in Trouble. Uh, by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. She is a New York Times writer. Her profiles are like incredible. We interviewed her for the show. She's just like wonderful. The book is like very fun and like it's an effervescent type of prose. Mm. Um, it's a fun read. A book that is a really heavy read that will not take you very long is Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys. It's about a reform school in Florida during the se- during um, segregation. And um, these two black boys were there and just kind of trying to live and survive. And it has, I don't want to give anything away, but there's a part of the book where I did not see it coming in any way, and I had to put the book down and go on a walk. <gasps> it was like, it wasn't like a graphic, like it wasn't a scene of violence or or anything like that, or, or it wasn't like a, a particularly traumatic, like, it just was like so crazy. Um, it's a great book. Uh, I loved a book by uh, called Miracle Creek by Angie Kim, a courtroom thriller about an 
immigrant family who runs a treatment facility for kids with autism and special needs and there's an accident there and the you, you the whole book is like unpacking what the accident was at first i was like i don't know if i would like this book it is it's so good i lent it to my dad and my dad loved it and it's not normally his thing um also julia phillips wrote a book called disappearing earth which is probably my favorite book that i read this year it is a Somebody described it to me as like a magic trick, and I agree. It is a book about two little girls that go missing on a remote peninsula in Russia, and every subsequent chapter takes place in the months after the disappearance, and they follow different women who live on the peninsula. And when you're first reading it, you're like, why am I at a party with this girl? Mm. And then when you get to the end, you realize that every story had an important clue about what happened. <laughs> and like at the end, you're just like, oh my God, it, like it's it's really, really incredible. And I'm delighted to announce that we have an interview with her uh, that is going to be on this episode of this podcast where we talk about that book. It's oh, it's so, so good. Cool. I have a copy myself and I bought a copy for a family member for Christmas. And it's like, it's so good. Think, did you have trouble? Oh, I was going to say, did you have trouble staying with it? Like when, when you switch around from, like sometimes I find like when I have to switch from voice to voice, like it's hard for me to connect between characters. The, sense of, the sense of place in the book is so intense that, that it keeps you centered on the plot itself. Like the peninsula, the Kamchatka Peninsula is like super remote. It had been totally cut off from the rest of the world during the Soviet era. And that it's also like volcanic and there's all this like, you know, natural beauty and danger to it. Mm-hmm. So you really, the place is like what keeps you in the story. It's it's really, really good. Uh, we have to take a break, but when we come back, my conversation with Disappearing Earth author Julia Phillips. And now, more of your bad movie pitches. This story is a season of joy written by Carrie. A Martha Stewart-type celebrity named Joy goes to a small town for inspiration for a Christmas cookbook. She has a warm public image, but in real life, she's cold and lonely. She spends a good amount of time at the beginning of the movie holding her phone up to the sky, trying to get signal to get email and make business calls. She meets a handsome local farm-to-table chef named Nick. She falls in front of him while searching for signal. He teaches her about his family Christmas recipes and about slowing down to really enjoy the spirit of Christmas. They fall in love. They co-author a Christmas cookbook. Good night, my Christmas elves. All right. I am super stoked to give you guys a treat. The author of one of my favorite works of fiction this year is in studio with me, and I could not be happier to introduce to you Julia Phillips. Hi. I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, So, Julia, let me just get this out of the way. Your book, Disappearing Earth, which came out in May, uh, rocked my face off. (laughs) It's it's one of my favorite things I've read, and I've, I've been really... I've been re- not to brag, but I read a lot because yeah. I'm lonely and have no friends. But um, it really uh, impacted me. And I, I think I read it in June and months later, I'm still thinking about it. So thank you for writing this book, first of all. Oh, that makes me so happy. Thank you for reading it. That blows my mind still. 
that people read a book that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> when you were writing it, did you feel like you were kind of in a room by yourself, like, I'll work and no play make Jack a dull boying over and over again? I definitely was in a room by myself a lot of the time. Um, and I was sharing pieces with people, but it's so hard when you're working on something to convince anyone to read it at any point. So uh -huh. it, it's really hard for me to imagine. You know, I would be like, I have these short stories in a literary magazine. Does anyone want to read them? And people would say, no, thank you, never. So this is a very different experience. <laughs> well, and you also were playing the long game with writing this and that it sounds like you you spent years living in the set the setting of the book Kamchatka Peninsula yeah. in Russia. I'm going to struggle with this pronunciation. <laughs> I'm like when I first opened the book, it has like all these Russian names, and I was like, oh boy, I know. Here we go with War and Peace, but it's actually it, it's not as hard to follow as like say the Russian investigation. Um, so you've been wanting to write a book, obviously set in this place for a while. What was the germination of that idea? I was a Russophile um, as a teen and in college. I, I studied Russian and I studied in Moscow. And I, for me, studying Russian and wanting to be a novelist, which was always my ambition, were really divergent interests and I couldn't figure out a way to tie them together. And finally I thought, okay, if I can go to Russia and write about um, write fiction about Russia in English, then that'll be the way to sort of like scratch both these itches at once. So I started looking for a setting for a novel and I didn't know what that novel would be, but I thought there are certain things I want that setting to be like. I would love it to be in Eastern Russia, because I spent a lot of time in Western Russia, I would love it to be not as centered around um, like a huge sort of urban and dense population, not as much about city life. I was living in New York City at the time. I had um, spent a lot of time in Moscow and, and I wanted to be in a setting that was sort of more rural or more um, connected to nature. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted it to be really attractive. I thought if I'm going to move to a place, I want it to be a beautiful place. And when I learned about Kamchatka, I thought this is it. This is like so much more, everything I wanted and so much more. So. so so it sounds like you're writing about a part of Russia that is itself marginalized from the rest of Russia. And then within that, you're writing about people who are marginalized. You're, the stories that we follow in the book are stories of women for, who, for whatever reason, are sort of pushed to the edge. You know, there's a woman who has a cancer diagnosis, who's also an asshole, but she has a cancer diagnosis and you feel very bad for her. And yeah. then there's a woman who becomes a widow for a second time. Um was the the choice to make the stories about women deliberate or did you just kind of feel the book pulling you in that direction? It was deliberate. I, I, the stories pulled me in that direction and then I went all in from the very beginning. So I um, started trying to go to Kamchatka in 2009. I got a grant that let me move there in 2011. Um, and once I got there, I found, you know, I Kamchatka is so isolated. It's based, It's on the Bering Strait, sort of if you picture the tail of Alaska swinging out, it swings into Kamchatka. And it was a region that was a military base during the Soviet Union, so it was totally closed to outsiders. And still, it's really difficult to get to. It doesn't have any roads that connect it to the mainland. It's effectively an island. And I went all the way around the world, you know, like 20 hours of flying time from home for me to get to this place that was so separate from... It's the rest of its country. And yet when I got there, all I could think about were um, concerns I had as an American, fears I was experiencing and bringing with me from home. I, I couldn't, you know, wherever you go, there you are. I couldn't leave those behind. Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of my experience in the world to that point, and a lot of my experience in the world now, is shaped by gender and shaped by identity and and by being a woman, by, for me, being white, um, by the experience of queerness in the world. All of these things were so present in my life, and I brought those with me, and they completely filtered how I perceived everyone in Kamchatka. So the structure of this book, which is about all these different women's stories in the context of this one big crime, like how these different women are impacted by this one disappearance of these two young sisters, it's about, for me, exploring that that range of what um, violence against women looks like, what harm in women's lives looks like, and how interconnected we all are, and yet how we have these very different experiences based on how we see ourselves and how other people see us in the world. Mm-hmm. The crime that kicks off this story is a disappearance. Was it inspired by anything real in this age of true crime? It was inspired by um, a couple cases, one of which it was inspired by a lot of different cases, um, some of which are so close to the, the crime in the book that my publicist said, stop talking about that. <laughs> okay. It's a spoiler for the book. No, but I, I'll say that um, I, uh, while I was working on this, I was going in really deep on the Jacob Wetterling case through the In the Dark podcast. I grew up near there. That is so... Did you listen to In the Dark? I couldn't. It was too, yeah. it was too like, it completely affected my whole child, like everybody's yeah. childhood around that part of the country. It was really yeah. consuming. It makes so much sense. And and I think the, the in this reflective podcast does a really good job at facing the trauma, the ongoing trauma of what happened that, you know, for his parents, like, or that doesn't go away, that doesn't recede, you know, mm-hmm. as the headlines recede. Um, but they also looked at the the scope of the investigation. And to me, that was so fascinating to situate this crime, um, this very personal, very individual crime inside a system that can um, be really easily misdirected. And and everywhere that you put your resource, if you're putting your resources for toward, for example, a national search, then you are not going to be dedicating as many resources to a local source mm-hmm. search. You just don't have, you know, limitless time and money and people to do that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you go with your gut and your gut leads you the wrong way. And to me, that was a really interesting thing to look at um, how these systems function and what collateral damage that creates for the people involved. Though, you know, it's funny, as you're talking, I was thinking, I see some Patty Wetterling in The Mother of the Girls. Um, Like, I really, really do. She was such a, she was a figure who was uh, pretty prominent locally for for a long time. Um, And yeah, that's, that's uh, super interesting. And it was also such a, I think you and I are around the same age. Mm -hmm. And the missing child motif was such a thing for us growing up. Um, And it's such a fear. Is it? a fear that people have in Russia also? Do people go missing in the wilderness? Do people get kidnapped? Is there, you know, is that something that happens? I So there are a couple of things I can say specifically about Kamchatka. To me, it was a real education to go to Kamchatka because it has relatively little infrastructure. Russia is so big. It's, it's a sixth of the populated land on the world. And Kamchatka is really far from the seat of power. Russia is really centralized. Um, so most of the wealth and the population and the infrastructure and the resources are sort of gathered in and around Moscow. And Kamchatka is um, 4,500 miles away from Moscow. And and so it, for example, um, it doesn't have 
many paved roads. It doesn't have um, train tracks. It doesn't have all sorts of different infrastructures that can create um, connection and also create a safety net among people that live there. And because of that, uh, and it's also a very, it's a very dynamic, um, even geographically dynamic place. So, you know, there are, it's, it's on the Pacific Ring of Fire, so it's really geothermally and seismically active. It has volcanoes. It has geysers and hot springs. Um, it has a pretty challenging climate because of this. In the same way, I think that is true in many places in the north and many places with little infrastructure. Um, sort of the boundary between life and death is thinner. Mm -hmm. And um, there are lots of ways that you can be at risk and lots of place, ways that you can be hurt, even if it's not at the hand of another person. Mm -hmm. So so death is kind of closer and more present. Um, if I get drunk, for example, on, in the streets of New York and I like stay out all night, something bad might happen, but it might not. If I get drunk in Kamchatka and stay out all night, like I might freeze to death. And that is not um, often something that people talk about in New York where I'm from, like mm -hmm. that, the idea that don't say it all night or you're freeze to death, like that is just not, uh, the idea of death is not so close, um, at least in my social circle. Right. I was interested in that, how, how much more acknowledged um, danger and death were. And I am also really, when I was there, I happened to be there at a time when I first, so I was there in 2011 to 2012, and then again in 2015. When I first went there, there was a serial killer operating there at the time, which I didn't know. Okay. And then he was, <laughs> but there were, there were like missing girl posters around. Uh huh. And then later, I think by, I think he was arrested in 2014, um, and ended up dying pretty soon after his arrest. So. That case was ongoing and in the background and, and posters were there and I, I think a sense of alarm was there. Mm -hmm. um, and yet it was something that uh, was not yet spoken about public. It wasn't yet mm -hmm. acknowledged as a thing. Right. All, like the, the smoke was there, but nobody was quite like, yeah, there's a fire behind the smoke. That makes, yes. that makes sense. You have um, there's a chapter in here about um, there's a, um, a female character who's gay. Um, did you, when you were in Russia preparing to write this book, um, did you get to know any people who were gay who experienced similar anxiety to the gay female character? Yeah, I did. Um, I met a couple there um, of two young women who had very similar concerns to that particular character. Um, in addition, the way that it manifests in the plot is is quite different, but their concerns were were. Um, the sort of thoughts that they were voicing are similar to thoughts that she has. Um, while I was there, there was also like there were also people being killed on Kamchatka for being gay, which is not, um, or for being suspected of being gay or queer, which is not a, something that's particular to Kamchatka or to Russia by any means. I mean, that is something that is is currently happening still in communities in America. And and that kind of um, community rage at people perceived to be other, I think, is really strong, mm -hmm. both there and here. And something that made a big impression on me, makes mm -hmm. a big impression on me. 
Yeah, it seems like one of the things that kind of kind of goes through the entire book is a sense of is a sense of that something like really bad just happened and is about to happen again. Like in a horror movie, you know, when like there's a jump scare and then you have a like little lull and you you know if you've seen enough horror movies, you know that the lull is there to calm you down so that your the next jump scare makes you even more scared. <laughs> um I want to kind of talk about the process of writing a novel, which to me, as someone who's never done it, seems like horrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I also wanted to tell our listeners that the reason that you're on the show right now is because after I read your book, I tweeted about it and we communicated over Twitter. And I also found out through Twitter after I read another book that I liked, Miracle Creek by Angie Kim, that you and Angie are friendly with each other. Yeah, we just had a sleepover this past weekend. <laughs> That's amazing to me. So my question is, um, you know, in novel writing, which seems like a very solitary pursuit, which we talked about before, how do you find community? And do you find that other women who do what you do support each other and, and how does that look? I so I I before I wrote this manuscript um for the this book for Disappearing Earth, I wrote a different manuscript and I wrote it totally in isolation. Like I was alone all the time. I wasn't really sharing my work with people and it really damaged um not only the final product but also because I wasn't seeking feedback or community at all, but also my well-being while I was working on it. I I think to write anything, you do need to have some private time and also some shared time where you're collaborating with people and hearing their ideas and hearing feedback, even if you don't end up incorporating it for whatever reason, just to understand that if you want to share your work with the world as a final product, you you also want to share your work with the world in process to some extent. Um, so while I was working on this book, I was really, really grateful to have writing groups and to um, have workshops and to be able to share my work with people who offered feedback. That was huge for me. I have been even having trying even trying to teach myself that lesson during the writing process that that sharing is so important, that collaboration is so important. I've been completely blown away since the book came out about how collaborative and supportive the writing community is. Certainly women writers, women debut writers like Angie, but also like everybody. Everyone is so generous with sharing resources and looking out for each other and celebrating each other. And it's a really, really beautiful thing that I think of how many years I spent, I don't know, feeling like there was a cool kids club that was going to kick me off their lunch table if I tried to come over. And mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like there's a just one lunch table that you're allowed to be at and mm -hmm. everywhere else is rejected. It actually feels like a really joyful dance party. Right. Also, there's like no cool kids. Like anytime, anytime I've, I've like re-entered -enter, a different sphere of my career, it's like, you know, I'm working at a, a blog. Oh, this is the cool kids. And I start working there. I'm like, no, we're all nerds who care desperately about what we do. And then you move into like journalism. Oh, the cool kids of journalism. Oh, no, they're nerds who care desperately about what they do. TV writing, same deal. Like uh, it's cool to hear that novelists are also. Well, see, all of the work you do. So when we were messaging on Twitter, I, of course, completely like fangirled all over you. And because all the work you do seems to me to be the most challenging thing, which is sort of writing on deadline or writing as as with the novel. No one was saying to me, oh, please write your novel. I need to have it in the world so I could spend all the time I wanted making it however I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that sort of responsive writing where the audience is there already 
that seems so challenging to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you find it challenging. I think it's just, it's a grass is greener situation. Yeah. Because if you're making something and you're constantly getting feedback, eventually you start to feel like you're losing your center. And you're mm-hmm. like, am I a crowdsourced person? <laughs> I mean, like everybody has a crisis and cr- the crisis of the person who's doing like quick deadline turnarounds, especially if you're doing op-ed stuff. So am I crowdsourced? Is all of this just generated by what gets garners the most positive attention? Yeah. And I think if you're working on something longer... The challenge would be that you're just sort of, you know, dancing in the dark Mm -hmm. and and that you don't quite know what people are because you don't want to just write something that's totally to your taste that nobody's really going to care about because the purpose, I think, of art is to communicate. Yeah, ultimately. Um, So it's I feel like it's a balance between like, how do I communicate effectively in a way that people will want to consume? Yeah. And then also remain true to what I'm trying to do, what my actual vision is. And it's, I think it's just hard no matter what you do. Yeah, yeah. It's a really important question with a no answer, no. seemingly. And sharing is so vulnerable. Like, yeah. you know, when you're talking about working in a writer's group, it's so hard to put something out like a first draft of a script or a first draft of a, a piece. Or you're like, I have a, a germ of an idea. It's the most vulnerable feeling mm-hmm. in the world. It's like walking naked into a meeting mm-hmm. and everybody else is wearing clothes. Yeah. So um, it's really cool to hear that it's something that I guess... People who work the way that you work, people who are novelists have to kind of muster that courage over and over again to like do it. And and that's like, it's cool. And it's cool that you've, you've done it and you've put out something that has been so meaningful to a lot of people. Like we were reading reviews, actually, our um, producers, because they put together a, a prep page for me even though I love that I want to see that (laughs) (laughs) I was like here are some reviews and they were reading the reviews and today they were like we were just like we have to read this book (laughs) because it was it was so well received by so many people so um I uh I'm really glad that you came in today and um um, I have one more question and that is about the title um because I just I'm fascinated by the way that people go about choosing titles for things because it's always the most frustrating (laughs) process how did you choose the title so I, so I chose the title based almost exactly off of what you just said before, off of this sense that at any moment something else could be lost. So the, the book kicks off with this big loss with the girls going missing. Um, and they right before they go missing, they're two sisters. One tells the other a story about a tsunami hitting Kamchatka and washing away a town. And in her telling, there's literally this piece of earth that disappears. And then just a couple of pages later, they are also swept away by something out of their control, something they could have never anticipated. And I wanted the title to refer to that specifically, that tsunami story, but also more generally a sense that, as you said, for these people, um, for these characters, anything could change at any moment. Anything could be lost, that they're really building their lives on unsteady ground. And, and I wanted the title to speak to that. That being said, before I sold the book, you know, I was working on it a long time. And sometimes when I was working on the manuscript, I would meet someone. And they would say, oh, you know, what's the name of the thing you're working on? And I would say, Disappearing Earth. And they would say, what? <laughs> and I would say, Disappearing Earth. And they'd say, sorry. And I would think, like, I got to find a better title. You know, I got to find, like, a pun, like, Gone Girl. Like, I got to find a really punchy Gone title. Girls. Uh. Gone Girls. That should have been it. But, um, you know, something that's a little less poetic sounding and a little more clear and, and memorable. Um, I never found it. We sold the book. We all at the publishing house kept looking for a better title. We never found it. 
Disappearing Earth is what it's remained. And still, the other day I said it to someone, they said, Disappearing Girth? And I was like, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) I would have sold a lot more books if that were the case. Uh, Well, Julia Phillips, thank you so much for joining me all the way here on the opposite coast of where you're from. Um, And uh, listeners, if you haven't read Disappearing Earth, check it out. It's so great. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much. And now, more of your bad movie pitches. Of the Bells, written by Nancy, Mary, and Robin. In the idyllic southern town of Mistletoe, Mississippi, the Bells are getting ready to stage their annual Christmas pageant. The plans hit a snag when the group's longtime set builder unexpectedly skips town. But Mistletoe still demands a show. So Adele, the Queen Bell and Star Soprano, dumps the responsibilities of the sure-to-be disastrous production on Carol, Julie Bowen, circa 1998, the group's all-too-polite alto. Seemingly hopeless, Carol serendipitously stumbles upon a local farmhand named Josephine, who reluctantly agrees to help Carol build this year's set. A couple weeks of hard work later, the show is back on track. But on the eve of the premiere, Carol and Joe discover their new set has been mysteriously sabotaged. Spoiler alert, it was that jealous soprano Adele. Now Carol and Joe pull on an all-nighter to fix the damage. Tempers run high hot. Together they stage the greatest Christmas pageant in mistletoe history and build a connection that will last a lifetime. Ugh, that is hot. I'd love to build a set with another hot lesbian. And welcome back. Now we're going to do something a little bit more fun with a look back on 2019. Instead of talking about our favorite pieces of art and culture, we're going to talk about our favorite clapbacks because it feels like this year we pretty much perfected the art of the clapback especially when it comes to clapping back at the president oh yeah <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that who were your favorite women who clapped back <laughs> at the president in 2019 priyanka let's start with oh, you you seem, me? you seem excited about it yeah um okay well i mean my the first one i thought of is i feel like my favorite until someone on, at this table comes up with another one that I'm like, nope, never mind. But Greta Thunberg, 16 years old, uh, is just out here trolling this man um, <laughs> to no end. And he, I mean, like what he says to like about a kid is fucking crazy, especially, I mean, like there's all this stuff about like them getting upset when Baron Trump's name is mentioned. Like, you know, there's all that. Um it's ridiculous. It's awful. It's super immature. I mean, like, what do you expect from this man? But um, the way she she doesn't get, like, angry about it, she just makes it her Twitter bio every time. She's like, you know, like, happy young girl, like, whatever. Loves to love. I don't know. It's so funny. Uh, yeah. It just every single time is like, old people, why are you doing this? Don't <laughs> fight with teens on the internet. Yeah. Like, stop. It's stupid. They will defeat you. They will They, they will, will own your shit. The I teens, hope they rise up. The teens will defeat. I mean, online, it's like trying to beat a Russian at chess. Like, you can't beat the teens online. Yeah. No. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's like trying to beat American women at soccer. You can't do, can't it. do it. Woo! You can't do it. <laughs> Perfect segue. <laughs> okay. Perfect segue because my favorite clap back, Megan Rapino. Oh, yeah. Megan Rapino. He called her out for like a little viral video that came around where a reporter <laughs> asked her like, are you going to go to the White House if you win the World Cup? And she's like, no, I'm not going to the fucking White House. Icon. And he 
said something back on Twitter at her. And then she scored like two goals the next day. And then they won the tournament and she was the MVP. She was the golden boot, which is like the most goals you score in a tournament. Like the absolute best clap back, in my opinion. Maga Rapino came to this office at they won the <sighs> World Cup at like, I think the beginning of the week, the end of the week, she came to this office. I've never seen like no one. Crooked Media has never reacted this way to anybody. We are like all gathered around the door. We're like cheering. We're playing music. Like she walks in. We're just like like standing there screaming like psycho fans. We have never done that for anybody who has walked in here ever. Huh, kind of upset that I didn't know that she was going. No. <laughs> a little hurtful that me and Tian aren't getting that reaction when we walk in. A little hurtful. Well, yeah. But thank you for pointing it out. I'll have him cue up the DJ Khaled. I got to play I more soccer. <laughs> All I do. Oh, that's, that's what we were such playing. A good, I know. That's I mean, a good one. Oh, God. What else are you going to do? She recently put up a video um, of her endorsing Elizabeth Warren for president, and I got the World Cup feelings again, where I was like, <gasps> you and me, LFG. Oh, my God. Oh, I was like, wow. Oh, my God. Melting. Yeah, it was. It's really good. Um, Karen, do you have a favorite woman who sassed back to the president this year? I like that you changed the verbiage. It's almost like you could psychically feel me. Karen, Googling clapback. (laughs) What is this? What are we talking about? Can I nap yet? Um, No. (laughs) I think AOC has done a very nice job in her kind of take on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that's clapping back. It might just be doing her her job. He's such a dick to her and she does not shy away from him at all. She always she always comes back with something better than the thing. But like everyone who's a dick to her, it's just like she always has the perfect like clapback, like the degree to which the clapback goes. It's never like over the top. It's never like she's never a, falls flat. Yes. She nails it every single time. It's yeah. amazing. It's never over to- over the top like the scene in Pen15 <laughs> where there's a scene in Pen15 where like one of the girls is like yelling at a boy and she's like, and your dad's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And then they're like, God, you're awful. Oh, yeah. What does she call his, what, what's the dumb bitch or something she, like that? Yeah. Like, oh, God. Yeah. So funny. But she doesn't, you're right. She never goes too far. She goes, she like, yeah, it's the, it's pitch perfect every time. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, obviously she's great at everything she does, but like to do that is what a skill. Well, I was just thinking yesterday about when Trump told the squad to go back to their own countries and all of them are from the, <laughs> I mean, whatever. I mean, Ilhan Omar is the only member of the squad that wasn't born in the U.S., but she's an American. So who the fuck cares? Yes. Anyway. So stupid. Yeah, go back to where, where you came from. Okay, Minnesota. <laughs> she did go back to Minnesota and people cheered for her. People gathered in the airport and they cheered so, for her. I loved that. It was amazing. I loved that. People from Minnesota are great. They're great. For all the shitty things that happened in 2019, there were many positive things like mm-hmm, that. Totally. They had a press conference to clap back. And the press conference so. was them being super calm and collected and cool and on top of it, as opposed to his, like, you know, Elmer Fudd style losing his mind. They were sort of like Bugs Bunnying it. You know, they were just chill, chewing on their carrots and enjoying themselves. <laughs> Around that time that that story was happening, when the president told them to go back, I was holding a tote bag that said hashtag we won't go back in an elevator and a, <laughs> and a white dude was like 
yeah, we want you here. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> 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 and I was like, uh, Tian just covered her face with both hands. <laughs> I think, no, three of the four people at yeah. this table just covered their face. Yeah, and, he's like, we want you here. And I was like, I love confusing allyship. That's cool to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, here was one of my favorite moments was uh, when Donald Trump referred to Chrissy Teigen as John Legend's oh, yeah. filthy-mouthed wife. <laughs> <laughs> and she just was like, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. She's the type of person that I, I feel love like... her. Yeah, she's great. I feel like if people who are totally out of line step to her, she is like, good, cracks her knuckles yeah. and is like, all right, you want to do this, let's do it. Um, but she seemed to really relish it, and it was, it was very uh, funny and awesome and great. Um, also want to uh, give a shout-out to Cher, Another person who claps back at the president a lot. Mm. Uh, I have a, I made a list. Share uh, S- Susan Rice uh, and Kamala Harris, who was the target oh, yeah. a, target of a lot of the president's hate this year, who always had something to I say. I thought your list was just going to be of share clapbacks. I know. I thought it was. I was like, she's going to make up for my dearth of pop culture knowledge. You can go to www.twitter.com and yeah. see Share's clap. Share's Twitter is it's really phenomenal. really good. Phenomenal. And the formatting of her tweets yes. are always just so beautiful. It's delightful. Yeah. It's yeah. delightful. I've got to go check this out. It's pretty good. Um, okay. Well, that's all that happened in 2019. Nothing <laughs> else happened. And that is all the time we have for the last episode of Hysteria of 2019. Thank you, as always, to Alyssa Mastermonico for calling in. Thanks to Kieran, Tien, and Priyanka for joining me in the studio. Thanks to Julia Phillips for sitting down with me and for writing her incredible book. And thanks to you, the listeners. We love you guys, and we can't wait to make more show for you in 2020. Hysteria is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Sarah Barrett, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadina Malconian for filming and editing our video content every week. Sorry,